Section 11 of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christine Rutger, June 12, 2021, Westford, Massachusetts. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 8 Savings Banks. I wish I could write all across the sky, in letters of gold, the one word, Savings Bank. Reverend Wynne Marsh The only true secret of assisting the poor is to make them agents in bettering their own condition. Archbishop Sumner Qui avait ne sait, à trente ne peut, à quarante ne, jamais ne sera, ne pourra, n'aura. French proverb. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which have no guide, no overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. Proverbs VI 6. It is said that there is a skeleton in every household. The skeleton is locked up, put away in a cupboard, and rarely seen. Only the people inside the house know of its existence, but the skeleton nevertheless cannot be long concealed. It comes to light in some way or another. The most common skeleton is poverty. Poverty, says Douglas Gerald, is the great secret kept at any pains by one half of the world from the other half. When there is nothing laid by, nothing saved to relieve sickness when it comes, nothing to alleviate the wants of old age. This is the skeleton hid away in many a cupboard. In a country such as this, where business is often brought to a standstill by over-trading and over-speculation, many masters, clerks, and workpeople are thrown out of employment. They must wait until better times come round. But in the meantime, how are they to live? If they have accumulated no savings and have nothing laid by, they are comparatively destitute. Even the cooperative cotton mills or cooperative banks, which are nothing more than joint stock companies limited, may become bankrupt. They may not be able, as was the case during the cotton famine, to compete with the large capitalists in the purchase of cotton or in the production of cotton twist. Cooperative companies established for the purpose of manufacturing are probably of too speculative a character to afford much lasting benefit to the working classes, and it seems that by far the safer course for them to pursue in times such as the present is by means of simple direct saving. There may be less chance of gain, but there is less risk of loss. What is laid by is not locked up and contingent for its productiveness upon times and trade, but is steadily accumulating and is always ready at hand for use when the pinch of adversity occurs. Footnote 1. The new cotton factories, which have been called cooperative, and which under that name have brought together large numbers of shareholders of the wage classes, are all now in reality common joint stock companies with limited liability. The so-called cooperative shareholders in the leading establishments decided, as I am informed, by large majorities, 
that the workers should only be paid wages in the ordinary manner and should not divide profits. The wages being for piecework, it was held that the payment was in accordance with communistic principle, each according to his capacity, each according to his work. The common spinner had no share in the work of the general direction, nor had he evinced any of the capacity of thrift or foresight of the capitalist, and why should he share profits as if he had? The wage class, in their capacity of shareholders, decided that it was an unjust claim upon their profits and kept them undivided to themselves. Edwin Chadwick, C.B. End of footnote one. Mr. Bright stated in the House of Commons in 1860 that the income of the working classes was understated at 312 millions a year. Looking at the increase of wages which has taken place during the last 15 years, their income must now amount to at least 400 millions. Footnote 2. Speech on the Representation of the People Bill. End of footnote 2. Surely out of this large fund of earnings, the working classes might easily save from 30 to 40 millions yearly. At all events, they might save such an amount as, if properly used and duly economized, could not fail to establish large numbers of them in current circumstances of comfort and even of comparative wealth. The instances which we have already cited of persons in the humbler ranks of life having by prudential forethought accumulated a considerable store of savings for the benefit of their families and as a stay for their old age, need not by any means be the comparatively exceptional cases that they are now. What one well-regulated person is able to do, others, influenced by similar self-reliant motives, and practicing like sobriety and frugality, might with equal ease and, in one way or another, accomplish. A man who has more money about him than he requires for current purposes, is tempted to spend it. To use the common phrase, it is apt to burn a hole in his pocket. He may be easily entrapped into company, and where his home provides but small comfort, the public house, with its bright fire, is always ready to welcome him. It often happens that workmen lose their employment in bad times. Mercantile concerns become bankrupt, clerks are paid off, and servants are dismissed when their masters can no longer employ them. If the disemployed people have been in the habit of regularly consuming all their salaries and wages without laying anything by, their case is about the most pitiable that can be imagined. But if they have saved something, at home or in the savings bank, they will be enabled to break their fall. They will obtain some breathing time before they again fall into employment. Suppose they have as much as ten pounds saved. It may seem a very little sum, yet in distress it amounts to much. It may even prove a man's passport to future independence. With ten pounds, a workman might remove from one district to another where employment is more abundant. With ten pounds, he might emigrate to Canada or the United States, where his labor might be in request. 
Without this little store of savings, he might be rooted to his native spot, like a limpet to the rock. If a married man with a family, his ten pounds would save his home from wreckage and his household from destitution. His ten pounds would keep the wolf from the door until better times came round. Ten pounds would keep many a servant girl from ruin, give her time to recruit her health, perhaps wasted by hard work, and enable her to look about for a suitable place instead of rushing into the first that offered. We do not value money for its own sake, and we should be the last to encourage a miserly desire to hoard amongst any class. But we cannot help recognizing in money the means of life, the means of comfort, and the means of maintaining an honest independence. We would therefore recommend every young man and every young woman to begin life by learning to save to lay up for the future a certain portion of every week's earnings, be it little or much, to avoid consuming every week or every year the earnings of that week or year, and we counsel them to do this as they would avoid the horrors of dependence and destitution or beggary. We would have men and women of every class able to help themselves, relying upon their own resources, upon their own savings. For it is a true saying that a penny in the purse is better than a friend at court. The first penny saved is a step in the world. The fact of its being saved and laid by indicates self-denial, forethought, prudence, wisdom. It may be the germ of future happiness. It may be the beginning of independence. Cobbett was accustomed to scoff at the bubble of savings banks alleging that it was an insult to the people to tell them they had anything to save. Yet to the extent to which savings banks have been used, even by the humblest classes, proves that he was as much mistaken in this as he was in many of the views which he maintained. There are thousands of persons who would probably never have thought of laying by a penny but for the facility of the savings bank. It would have seemed so useless to try. The small hoard in the cupboard was too ready at hand, and would have become dissipated before it accumulated to any amount. But no sooner was a place of deposit provided, where sums as small as a shilling could be put away, than people hastened to take advantage of it. The first savings bank was started by Miss Priscilla Wakefield, in the parish of Tottenham, Middlesex, towards the close of the last century, her object being mainly to stimulate the frugality of poor children. The experiment proved so successful that in 1799, the Reverend Joseph Smith of Wendon commenced a plan of receiving small sums from his parishioners during summer and returning them at Christmas with the addition of one-third as a stimulus to prudence and forethought. Miss Wakefield, in her turn, followed Mr. Smith's example, and in 1804 extended the plan of her charitable bank so as to include adult laborers, female servants, and others. A similar institution was formed at Bath in 1808 by several ladies of that city, and about the same time Mr. Whitbread, 
proposed to Parliament the formation of a national institution in the nature of a bank for the use and advantage of the laboring classes alone, but nothing came of his proposal. It was not until the Reverend Henry Duncan, the minister of Ruthwell, a poor parish in Dumfrieshire, took up the subject that the savings bank system may be said to have become fairly inaugurated. The inhabitants of that parish were mostly poor cottagers, whose average wages did not amount to more than eight shillings a week. There were no manufacturers in the district, nor any means of subsistence for the population, except what was derived from the land under cultivation, and the landowners were for the most part non-resident. It seemed a very unlikely place in which to establish a bank for savings, where the poor people were already obliged to strain every nerve to earn a bare living, to provide the means of educating their children, for however small his income, the Scottish peasant almost invariably contrives to save something wherewith to send his children to school, and to pay their little contributions to the friendly society of the parish. Nevertheless, the minister resolved, as a help to his spiritual instructions, to try the experiment. Not many laboring men may apprehend the deep arguments of the religious teacher, but the least intelligent can appreciate a bit of practical advice that tells on the well-being of his household as well as on the laborer's own daily comfort and self-respect. Dr. Duncan knew that even in the poorest family, there were odds and ends of income apt to be frittered away in unnecessary expenditure. He saw some thrifty cottagers using the expedient of a cow or a pig or a bit of garden ground as a savings bank, finding their return of interest in the shape of butter and milk, winter's bacon, or garden produce, and it occurred to him that there were other villagers single men and young women for whom some analogous mode of storing away their summer's savings might be provided and a fair rate of interest returned upon their little investments hence originated the parish savings bank of ruthwell the first self-supporting institution of the kind established in this country that the minister was not wrong in his anticipations was proved by the fact that, in the course of four years, the funds of his saving bank amounted to nearly a thousand pounds. And if poor villagers out of eight shillings a week and female laborers and servants out of much less could lay aside this sum, what might not mechanics, artisans, miners, and iron workers accomplish who earn from thirty to fifty shillings a week all year round? The example set by Mr. Duncan was followed in many towns and districts in England and Scotland. In every instance, the model of the Ruthwell Parish was followed, and the self-sustaining principle was adopted. The savings banks thus instituted were not eleemosynary institutions, nor dependent upon anybody's charity or patronage, but their success rested entirely with the depositors themselves. They encouraged the industrious classes to rely upon their own resources to exercise forthright and economy in the conduct of life, to cherish self-respect and self-dependence, 
and to provide for their comfort and maintenance in old age by the careful use of the products of their industry instead of having to rely for aid upon the thankless dole of a begrudged poor rate the establishment of savings banks with these objects at length began to be recognized as a matter of national concern and in eighteen seventeen an act was passed which served to increase their number and extend their usefulness various measures have since been adopted with the object of increasing their efficiency and security but notwithstanding the great good which these institutions have accomplished it is still obvious that the better paid classes of workpeople avail themselves of them to only a very limited extent a very small portion of the four hundred millions estimated to be annually earned by the working classes finds its way to the savings bank while at least twenty times the amount is spent annually at the beer shop and the public house it is not the highly paid class of working men and women who invest money in the savings banks but those who earn comparatively moderate incomes thus the most numerous class of depositors in the manchester and salford savings bank is that of domestic servants after them rank clerks shopmen porters and miners only about a third part of the deposits belong to the operatives artisans and mechanics it is the same in manufacturing districts generally a few years since it was found that of the numerous female depositors at dundee only one was a factory worker the rest were for the most part servants there is another fact that is remarkable the habit of saving does not so much prevail in those counties where wages are the highest as in those counties where wages are the lowest previous to the era of post-office savings banks the inhabitants of wilts and dorset where wages are about the lowest in england deposited more money in the savings banks per head of the population than they did in lancashire and yorkshire where the wages are about the highest in england taking yorkshire itself and dividing it into manufacturing and agricultural the manufacturing inhabitants of west riding of york invested about twenty-five shillings per head of the population in the savings banks whilst the agricultural populations of east riding invested about three times that amount private soldiers are paid much less wages per week than the lowest paid workmen and yet they put more money in the savings banks than workmen who are paid from thirty to forty shillings a week soldiers are generally supposed to be a particularly thoughtless class indeed they are sometimes held up to odium as reckless and dissolute but the military savings bank returns refute the vilification and prove that the british soldier is as sober well disciplined and frugal as we already know him to be brave most people forget that the soldier must be obedient sober and honest if he is a drunkard he is punished if he is dishonest he is drummed out of the regiment wonderful is the magic of drill drill means discipline training education the first drill of every people is military it has been the first education of nations the duty of obedience is thus taught on a large scale submission to authority united action under a common head 
These soldiers, who are ready to march steadily against volleyed fire, against belching cannon, up fortress heights, or to beat their heads against bristling bayonets, as they did at Badajos, were once tailors, shoemakers, mechanics, delvers, weavers, and plowmen, with mouths gaping, shoulders stooping, feet straggling, arms and hands like great fins hanging by their sides. But now their gait is firm and martial, their figures are erect, and they march along to the sound of music, with a tread that makes the earth shake. Such is the wonderful power of drill. Nations, as they become civilized, adopt other methods of discipline. The drill becomes industrial. Conquest and destruction give place to production in many forms. And what trophies industry has won, what skill has it exercised, and what labors has it performed? Every industrial process is performed by drilled bands of artisans. Go into Yorkshire and Lancashire, and you will find armies of drilled laborers at work, where their discipline is perfect and the results as regards the amount of manufactured productions turned out of hand are prodigious. On efficient drilling and discipline, men's success as individuals and as societies entirely depends. The most self-independent man is under discipline, and the more perfect the discipline, the more complete his condition. A man must drill his desires and keep them under subjection, he must obey the word of command, otherwise he is the sport of passion and impulse. The religion's man's life is full of discipline and self-restraint. The man of business is entirely subject to system and rule. The happiest home is that where the discipline is the most perfect, and yet where it is the least felt. We at length become subject to it as to the law of nature. And while it binds us firmly, yet we feel it not. The force of habit is but the force of drill. One dare scarcely hint in these days at the necessity for compulsory conscription. And yet, were the people at large compelled to pass through the discipline of the army, the country would be stronger, the people would be soberer, and thrift would become much more habitual than it is at present. Military savings banks were first suggested by Paymaster Fairfowl in 1816, and about ten years later the question was again raised by Colonel Oglander of the 26th Foot Cameronians. The subject was brought under the notice of the late Duke of Wellington and negatived. The Duke making the following memorandum on the subject, There is nothing that I know of to prevent a soldier equally with others of his majesty's subjects from investing his money in savings banks. If there be any impediment, it should be taken away, but I doubt the expediency of going further. The idea, however, seems to have occurred to the duke that the proposal to facilitate the saving of money by private soldiers might be turned to account in the way of a reduction in the army expenditure and he characteristically added, Has a soldier more pay than he requires? If he has, it should be lowered, not to those now in the service, but to those enlisted hereafter. No one, however, could allege that the pay of the private soldier was excessive, 
and it was not likely that any proposal to lower it would be entertained. The subject of savings banks for the army was allowed to rest for a time, but by the assistance of Sir James MacGregor and Lord Howick, a scheme was at length approved and finally established in 1842. The result has proved satisfactory in an eminent degree and speaks well for the character of the British soldier. It appears from a paper presented to the House of Commons some years ago, giving the details of the savings effected by the respective corps, that the men of the Royal Artillery had saved over 23,000 pounds, or an average of 16 pounds to each depositor. These savings were made out of a daily pay of one and threepence and a penny for beer money, or equal to about nine and sixpence a week, subject to sundry deductions for extra clothing. Again, the men of the Royal Engineers, mostly drawn from the skilled mechanical class, had saved nearly 12,000 pounds, or an average of about 20 pounds for each depositor, the 26th Regiment of the Line, Cameronians, whose pay was a shilling a day and a penny for beer, saved over 4,000 pounds. 250 men of the 1st Battalion, or one-third of the corps, were depositors in the savings bank, and their savings amounted to about 17 pounds per man. But this is not all. Private soldiers, out of their small earnings, are accustomed to remit considerable sums through the post office to their poor relations at home. In one year, 22,000 pounds were thus sent from Aldershot, the average amount of each money order being 21 shillings and fourpence. And if men with seven shillings and seven pence a week can do so much, what might not skilled workmen do whose earnings amount to from two to three pounds per week? Soldiers serving abroad during arduous campaigns have proved themselves to be equally thoughtful and provident. During the war in the Crimea, the soldiers and seamen sent home through the money order office 71,000 pounds, and the Army Works Corps 35,000 pounds. More than a year before the money order system was introduced at Scutari, Miss Nightingale took charge of the soldiers' savings. She found them most willing to abridge their own comforts or indulgences for the sake of others dear to them, as well as for their own future well-being, and she devoted an afternoon in every week to receiving and forwarding their savings to England. She remitted many thousands of pounds in this manner, and it was distributed by a friend in London, much of it to the remotest corners of Scotland and Ireland and it afforded some evidence that the seed fell in good places, as well as of the punctuality of the post office, that the whole number of remittances, all but one, were duly acknowledged. Again, there is not a regiment returning from India, but brings home with it a store of savings. In the year 1860, after the Indian mutiny, more than 20,000 pounds were remitted on account of invalided men sent back to England, besides which there were eight regiments which brought home balances to their credits in the regimental banks amounting to 40.499 pounds. 
The highest was the 84th, whose savings amounted to 9,718 pounds. The 78th Rothshire Buffs, the heroes who followed Havelock on his march on Lucknow, saved 6,480 pounds, and the gallant 32nd, who held Lucknow under the Inglis, saved 5,263 pounds. The 86th, the 1st Battalion of the 10th, and the 9th Dragoons, all brought home an amount of savings indicative of providence and forethought, which reflected the highest honor upon them as men as well as soldiers. Footnote 1. The sums sent home by soldiers serving in India for the benefit of friends and relatives are not included in these amounts, the remittances being made direct by the paymasters of the regiments and not through the savings banks. End of footnote 1. Footnote 2. The amount of the fund for military savings banks on the 5th of January 1876 was 338,350 pounds. End of footnote 2. And yet the private soldiers do not deposit all their savings in the military savings bank, especially when they can obtain access to an ordinary savings bank. We are informed that many of the household troops stationed in London deposit their spare money in the savings banks rather than in the regimental banks. And when the question was on a recent occasion asked as to the cause, the answer given was, I would not have my sergeant know that I was saving money. But in addition to this, the private soldier would rather that his comrades did not know that he was saving money. For the thriftless soldier, like the thriftless workman, when he has spent everything of his own, is very apt to set up a kind of right to borrow from the fund of his more thrifty comrade. End of section 11, 